Shabbat Shalom for the second time tonight. I am here with Michael. Always excited to hear what his commentary is going to be. And uh, I will say that I, I, you know, I was thinking about Michael today as I was going through my commentary. And we're going to be going over uh, the Aramaic Targum, Genesis chapters 12 through 13. Uh, no, I'm sorry, 13 through 14 this week. And I was thinking about it because he posted this picture of his view from his house and uh, where he lives in the uh, the flat motionless plane, except where he lives, it's not very flat. And it was like looking out a window and there was the sun there, but it was like up on top of a mountain. I'm like, that is drop dead gorgeous. So um, that's uh love his view. And I was just thinking about him doing his study, maybe from that view. I don't know if he sits by that window, but Anyways, we will be reading tonight, as I was saying, from Genesis 13 and 14. And uh, I'm going to hand it over to you, Michael, to start us out. Shabbat Shalom us and uh, read. I don't know. It's up to you whether you want to read 13 and 14 or just 13 and then divide it up and uh, start the first commentary. So welcome. Glad you could be here. All right. Shabbat Shalom, everyone. <clears throat> yes. View from the Ozarks. Very nice. Um, I can. I guess I'll read both. Yeah, I'll read both. I'll give you a break. Um, so this is Genesis Targum Palestinian, chapter 13. And I posted the link, and hopefully Josh got it. All right, let's go. Um, and Abraham, Abram went up from Mitzrayim, he and his wife, and all that he had, and Lot with him, to go to the south. And Abram had become very strong in cattle, and silver, and in gold. And he proceeded in his journeyings from the south unto Bethel, and returned to the place where he had outspread his tabernacle at the first, between Bethel and Ai, to the place of the altar which he had made there at the beginning. And Abraham, Abraham prayed there in the name of the Lord, and also unto Lot, who was remembered through the righteousness of Abram. There were sheep and oxen and tents, and the land could not sustain them to dwell together, because their possessions were, for, were great, and they were not able to dwell together. And contentions arose between the shepherds of Ab Abram's flock and the shepherds of flocks of Lot, for the shepherds of Abram had been instructed by him not to go among the Canaanite in the Fezeri, who as yet had power in the land and to restrain the cattle that they should make no depredation in going to the place of their pasture. But the shepherds of Lot would go and feed in the grounds of the Kenazi and the Pharisee, who yet dwelt in the land. And Abram said to Lot, Between me and thee, let there not now be controversy, nor between my shepherds and thy shepherds, for we are brethren. Is not all the land before thee? Separate then from me, if thou to the north, I to the south, if thou to the south, I to the north. And Lot uplifted his eyes towards the place of fornication, and beheld all the plain of Jardinia, that it was altogether well watered, before the Lord and his wrath had, had destroyed Sodom and Amorah, a land admirable for trees, as the garden of the Lord, and for the fruitage, as the land of Mitzrayim, as thou goest up to Zohar. And Lot chose him all the plain of Jardinia, and Lot journeyed from the east, and they separated the one man from his brother. Abram dwelt in the land of Canaan, and Lot dwelt in the towns of the plain, and spread his tabernacle towards Sadom. And the men of Sadom were depraved in their wealth, one with another, and they sinned in their bodies. They sinned with open nakedness, and the shedding of innocent blood, and practiced strange worships, and rebelled greatly against the name of the Lord. And the Lord said to Abram, After that Lot had separated from him, Lift up now thine eyes, and look from the place where thou art, to the north and to the south, to the east and to the west. For all the land that thou seest will I give unto thee, and to the sons forever. And I will make thy sons manifold as the dust of the earth, 
as that, as it impossible for a man to number the dust of the earth, so also it shall be impossible to number thy sons. Arise, journey in the land, and make occupation of it. In length and breadth, for to thee will I give it. And Abraham stretched his tent and made folds for oxen and sheep and came and dwelt in the vow of Mamre, which is in Hebron. And he built there an altar before the Lord. I will read 14. So this is Genesis Targum, Palestinian, chapter 14. So, And it was in the days of Amraphel, he is Nimrod, who commanded Abram to be cast into the furnace. He was then king of Pontos, Arioch, so-called, because he was Arioch, tall among the giants, king of Thalassar, Kedilomer, so-called, because he had bound himself or gone over among the bondmen of the king of Elam and Thidal, crafty as a fox, king of the people subjected to him, made war with Barah, whose deeds were evil, king of Saddam, and with Bersha, whose deeds were with the wicked, king of Amorah, Shinab, who had hated his father, king of Adma and Shemabar, who had corrupted himself with fornication, king of Zebulun, and the king of the city, which consumed Bela, the doors thereof, which is Zoar. All these were joined in the valley of gardens, Paradisia, the place that produced the streamlets of water that emptied themselves into the sea of salt. Twelve years they had served Kedolomar, and in the thirtieth year they had rebelled. And then the fourteenth year, Kedolomar and the kings who were with him and smote the giants, Gibberia, which were Ashtaroth Carneum, and the strong who were in Hamatha, and the terrible who were in the plain of Carathiam, and the Chori, dwellers in the caverns, who were in the high mountains of Gabala, unto the valley of Pharaon, which was nigh upon the edge of the desert. And they returned and came to the place where was rendered the judgment of Moshe the prophet, to the fountain of the waters of strife, which is Rechom. And they smote all the fields of Amalki, and also the Emery, who dwelt in Engedi, and the king of Sadam, and the king of Amora, and the king of Adma, and the king of Zeboam, and the king of the city which consumed its inhabitants, which is Zoar, went forth and set the array of battle against them in the valley of gardens. And with Ketalomar, king of Elam, and Thidal, king of the nations obedient to him, and Amraphel, king of Pontos, and Ariok, king of Thessalar, four kings arrayed in battle against five. And the valley of the gardens had many pits filled with bitumen, and the kings of Sedom and Amor fled away, and fell there, and they were left fled to the mountains. And they all took property of Sedom and Amor, all their food, and went. And they made captive Lot, the son of Abraham's brother, and his property, and went. And he dwelt in Sedom. And Og came, who had been spared from the giants that died in the deluge, and had written, protected upon the top of the ark, and sustained with food by Noah, not being spared through righteousness, but the inhabitants of the world might see the power of the Lord. And say, were there not giants who in the first times rebelled against the Lord of the world and perished from the earth? But when these kings made war, behold, Og, who was with them, said in his heart, I will go and show Abram concerning Lot, who was led captive, that he may come and deliver him from the hands of the kings, into whose hands he has been delivered. And he arose and came upon the eve of the day of Pasha, and found him making unleavened cakes. Then he then, then showed he to Abraham the Hebrew, who dwelt in the valley of Mamre and Morah, brother of Eshcol and brother of Aner who were men of covenant with Abram. When Abram heard that his brother was made captive, he armed his young men who were trained for war, grown up in his house, but they willed not to go with him. And he chose them Eliezer, the son of Nimrod, who was equal in strength to all the 318, and he pursued Dan. He divided them at night in the way, a part where to engage with the kings, and a part were hidden to smite the firstborn of Egypt. And he arose, he and his servants, and smote them, and he pursued them which remained of them, the place of the memorial of sin, which was to be in Dan from the north of Darmasek. 
and he brought back all the substance, and also Lot his brother, and his substance he brought back, and also women and the people. And the king of Saddam came forth, after that he returned from destroying Kedalomar. And the kings were with him to meet at the plain of Memphana, which was the king's race course. And Malchazadiki, who was Shambarnoa, the king of Jerusalem, came forth to meet Abram, and brought forth to him bread and wine. And in that time he ministered before Elo, Eloha Elaha. And he blessed him and said, Blessed be the Abram of the Lord God Most High, who for the righteous possesseth the heavens and the earth. And blessed be Eloha Elaha, who had made thine enemies as a shield, which receiveth a blow. And he gave to him one of ten, of all which he brought back. And the king of Saddam said to Abram, Give me the souls of men of my people, whom thou hast brought back, and the substance take to thyself. And Abram said to the king of Saddam, I have lifted up my hands in an oath before the Lord God Most High, who for the just possesseth his possession of the heavens and the earth. If from a thread to, to the latchet of a sandal I received anything of all that is thine, lest thou magnify thyself in saying, I have enriched Abram from my own. Have I not power over all the spoil, apart from what the young men have eaten, and the portion of them who went with me, Anar, Eshkol, and Mamri, they also receiving their portion? I'm going to hand off to Noel because I need some a break here, but uh, look, looking forward to this, and uh, off to Noel. There's an interesting discussion going on in the, the chat about the... You know, I think kind of stemming off of our Romans, the Roman study, chapter six, and this idea of the pursuit of righteousness and the desire to, you know, cast uh, sin aside. And it's interesting that as we become, and this is very uh, relevant to what we're reading in Genesis 13 and 14, and what I'll be talking about some tonight, um, you know, contrasting Nimrod with Abraham and also throwing Lot into the Lot, uh, is that it seems like a lot of, um, Christians have a mentality that their the lot is their the bar. They're raised. They're raising they're only so far as the the lot. And your know, luck, he escaped from Sodom and Gomorrah. He's good to go. I'm you know. And what we're going to see here is that um, what we really want to raise it up to is Abraham. I mean, Abraham was like the definition of righteousness, the, the father of of the faith, of 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 being credited to righteousness because of his faith. And the more we pursue after the Father and um, and His ways, the more alien we come to the world. And there's going to be there's more hostility from the world because they see us as a stranger to the world now. Like you know, Christianity advertises all the time that they're strangers to the world, but it really hits the fan when people start really being obedient and they're like, "I don't like you anymore. I don't you know like this person this person you've become." And you know, showing us fruits and all this kind of stuff. I mean, that's just a reality um, that we all have to deal with and interesting conversation going on. Well, anyways, um, I was going to ask you, Michael, whether we're calling him Og or Og, because I think you started calling him Og, but then you called him Og. So because um, I was going to seriously ask that because I mispronounce people's names all the time. I'm like, is it Og? Have I been saying Og all the time and it's wrong? Um, all right. So. Starting out in verses one and two, we see that he has returned from Egypt. Uh, and last week I went into great lengths to talk about what the plague was in Egypt. And it was erectile dysfunction uh, that all the men were crying out in the nights in Egypt uh, because they were unable to come with their wives. Uh, this is the context was because Sarah was taken into Pharaoh's bed. And that's how Yah protected uh, his lineage. I mean, going into this idea of, of serpent seed and uh, whether you ascribe to that or not i mean it seems to me that there was a uh, satan has 
He's going out of his way to try to destroy Abraham's seed the same way he did with Adam and Eve, with the Canaanites, with the Canaanites, the children of Cain. He's trying to do this all again. He's trying to squash the uh, the coming Messiah. And and Yahuwah is like, nope, I'm, I, if I have to make everybody on earth infertile, I will do it if it means getting uh, this lineage set up. And that's what we saw. Now, they're coming out of Egypt. It never says how Abram became wealthy in Egypt in Genesis, uh, if I'm reading this right. Uh, but, but it seems to tie in with the plague that had occurred. There's a definite contrast uh, between the plague that has happened in Egypt and he's coming out wealthy, stinking, filthy, rich, uh, in the same way that Yasharel, when they left Egypt with the plagues, they looted Egypt as well and they came out. And he's coming out with much of Pharaoh's treasury. Uh, so anyways, we, we knew, we know Pharaoh caused him to prosper in writings of Abraham. All right. Verses three and four. Um, when Abraham, when I should say Abram, when Abram had been on this very spot, he returns to Bethel. All right. And this is where he actually saw Yahuwah was revealed to him. There's been a lot of questions about what actually happened when he was revealed to him there. But it's interesting that we see him uh, returning to the same spot immediately where he was a few years earlier before going to Egypt. And, um, but the situation has now changed because now Lot and Abram, they're not, they're not getting along. They were getting along fine when they left Babylon, but now something happened in Egypt that estranged them and Lot's having a difficult time. So how things have changed. A little money went right to his head, it seems. I mean, Lot is filthy, sick, and rich now, too. And he's like, I don't need Abraham anymore. Lot, And as I was saying, Lot is often the example of, oh, it's, let me just say here, verse 5. And also unto Lot, who was remembered through the righteousness of Abram. So it says Lot was remembered through the righteousness of Abram. All right? That, that's, um, I... I hope that I could be remembered for the righteousness of, you know, Yahusha. Uh, but um, it, it doesn't say here that Lot was righteous. I know it says that later on in scripture and try to examine the, the, the contrast and comparison here. But Lot is often the example of what other Christians want to be. I know this because I heard this my entire life in scripture as we're coming up on uh you know the rapture of the church or the end times and judgment was coming on the world they're like i'm gonna be like lots it's like well why are you gonna be like lot why not like abraham nobody says they're gonna be like abraham they always be like i'm gonna be like lot i'm living in sodom and gomorrah in this sinful place and i'm you know the angels are gonna knock on my door and take me out of here that's as i was saying that's really lowering the bar they want to be remembered for somebody else's righteousness not their own of all the Old Testament figures that we can aspire to be, it seems like Lot is the person that most identify with. I don't hear people saying they identify with Jeremiah or Ezekiel or, you know, what, just fill in the blank. It's Lot, Lot, time and again. All right, so um, this is an interesting thing that happens in verse 10. So they're having a, a point of contention. All right, uh, Abraham and Lot and their their fellow uh, shepherds, and it says, and Lot uplifted his eyes towards the place of fornication. All right, so we're we're starting to work into the Sodom storyline, and beheld all the plain of the Jordan that it was altogether well watered, 
before Yahuwah and his wrath had destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah, a land admirable for trees, pay attention to this, as the garden of Yahuwah, and for fruitage as the land of Mizraim, as thou goest up to Zoar. All right. So it's interesting there because on one hand, Lot recognizes that this is a lot like Eden. And it, I often wonder why is it that the that this is, keep in mind, I've stated this before, this is the promised land of inheritance that Abraham's descendants will later get. And the southern portion where Sodom and Gomorrah is leading up to the Salt Sea and the Red Sea, if you go there now, it is a vast desert. Like you go out there for 20 minutes and you're dying of thirst already if you don't have water on you. I mean, it's it's brutal out there. But back then, this was a fertile wilderness uh, lush with trees. It was a garden. It was a garden state. Beautiful. Yah destroyed the most beautiful land there. He destroyed it. And I often wonder why that is. Why did he choose to, I mean, it, it's a great, it, it's a great testimony for the people coming there saying, look, if you're, uh, if you act up like this, I'm same thing's going to happen to you. But, um, I often think, you know, it, on one hand, it's a little sad. Um, and, um, so what a wild contrast. Lot sees the land of Sodom and Gomorrah uh, that it resembles the Garden of Eden, but also Egypt. That tells us his wires were crossed. He didn't really want paradise for the reasons any of us should want paradise, to be in the presence of Elohim. For Lot, he was trying to find a place that resembles his time in Egypt. By doing this, he chooses a life independent of Yahuwah. Some people will think I'm being a little harsh. I don't think I am. The next verse gives us another clue in Lot's choices. Uh, uh, 13 and 11 says, um, Then Lot chose for himself all the plain of the Jordan, and Lot journeyed from the east. So again, we have a, we have a repetition of the phrase, from the east. Where have we heard that before? That was, that was a phrase used in Genesis 11-2 a couple weeks ago to describe the builders of the Tower of Babel who came from the east. The language is purposeful. Lot was moving away from Yahuwah and the ancient paths. He has distanced himself from the pure ways of Yahuwah. But we know where this story ends, mostly. Lot's preference for what the world could offer him did not pay off for him in the end. Lot could have been described as a righteous man, despite his choices. Um, even with his faith in Yahuwah, this was this man was not able to pull himself away from the world symbolized by Egypt. He, when he went to Egypt, he fell in love with Egypt. It's like he left he left Babylon only to fall in love with Egypt. Really interesting thing going on. And it, by the way, this idea of from the east, I, I was trying to think about this this week. It reminds me of the Freemason notion of traveling to the east. Now I'm I am told that. Uh, amongst Freemasons, one of their language use is um, that uh, they might come up to you and ask if you're a traveling man. You know, it's almost like spies, you know, giving like language. And you're supposed to say, uh, you're supposed to say that something along the lines of you're traveling to the East. It, for them, it's all about the East. You know, the North apparently is evil and wicked, uh, but they want to go to the East. And I have, I kid you not, I have had people that have asked me this question. I'm kicking myself now because like the next time someone asks me if I'm a traveling man, I I might I might answer, yeah, I'm headed to the east, just to see where the conversation goes. Because you never know, uh, that might get me in a lot of trouble. But 
Uh, but it reminds me of the, also the Ricky Nelson song. You know, he's a traveling man. And uh, anyways, so here's how the same scene is described for us in the writings of Abraham. Uh, I referred to this a lot this last week, but this is some really good material. Now, after our departure from Egypt, so same, same uh, scene is being set up, a faction arose among our people upon seeing the great wealth which Pharaoh had entrusted to us. See, the money went straight to their heads. For they desired property which they could call their own. And I want you to pay attention to that. See, what was happening with Abraham is that uh, in the Meshelzedek priesthood, um, it, you see the same thing with Job. That uh, if you read the testimony of Job, that he was a, Job was a wealthy man, but everything he owned was for the benefit of the widows, the poor. Uh, he would, he would, he, uh, it was said that he had, um, I think Job says in the testimony of Job that he had four entrances to his house, which is a very Jewish idea. And that so that from all four directions, people could come into his house and he could feed them and take care of the travelers. That was very important to him. It was the same thing with Abraham. Uh, it is said in in rabbinical tradition that Abraham, his tent always had four open sides, and um, this was to welcome you know people from all ways. And he, of course, we see him that he was camped near to Sodom and Gomorrah. He's there preaching to people, trying to give them the gospel, trying to spare them, and so on and so forth. All right, but Lot, he desired property for himself. He didn't want to share it. He didn't need Abraham's. You see, he was using Abraham's property before. But now that he had it himself, he's like, I don't really feel like sharing this anymore. That was the contention that arose. So Lot also was among them, the contenders, which thing grieved me, Abraham, greatly. But seeing they would not be reconciled, we gave unto them a portion of the common property, and they departed from us under Lot's direction and settled in the valley of the Jordan River, which is the Sodom and Gomorrah area. There they went from place to place as their flocks needed pasture until they reached the city of Sodom where they mingled with the inhabitants and became one of them. Not good. He became of the world. Lot also built a house in Sodom and settled there. But of all that company that went out from us, only Lot maintained his integrity and did not violate the covenants of his priesthood, nor bow to heathen idol Elohim. This is a tragic picture because this reminds me of some of the things that happen all that like we've been having happen in, in the Torah uh, camp recently where a lot of people have just been leaving in droves and they just go back to the world and they don't want anymore. They decide they don't, you know, they've been fed the rich riches of Yahuwah and they're like, okay, I'm good. And they just go back into the world. Nevertheless, Lot did not walk perfectly in the way of the fathers for he dwelt not among the people of Elohim, but built his own house and he converted his own property that he should govern it rather than holding all things common with the saints. And see, again, that's why he moved away from them, so that, you know, none of Abraham's people had to come in and, you know, borrow his, you know, butter or milk or, you know, whatever. He went all for himself. Nevertheless, Lot did continue to serve Yahuwah, and Yahuwah loved him, and his family and his property grew very large. But I was grieved in my heart that Lot had parted from me for uh, he had stood at my right hand and had been instructed in a better way. Meanwhile, I with my people dwelt in Bethel, where we did worship Yahuwah, our Elohim, after the order of the ancients, and did strive diligently to establish the holy order of Elohim among us in ever-increasing perfection. Wherefore, we did banish from among us all contention, all covetousness, all selfishness, 
and we were of one heart and of one mind and dedicated in all our service unto Yahuwah and held all things common. No man called anything his own. All right, I'm going to pause it there and hand it back to Michael and uh, take it away. All right, good stuff. I think Noel is the same. We have a little bit on 13 and a lot on 14, but um, I will split mine up as well. So I'm going to start on 5 too. So that's what he did. I just want to highlight it again, emphasize what he emphasized, and that is KGB says, and Lot also, which went with Abraham, had flock, Abram, flocks, or er, herds, and tents. And Palestinian says, and also unto Lot, who was remembered for the righteousness of Abram? There were sheep and oxen and tents. Um, I just wanted to bring that out there again. Remembered through the righteousness of Abram. Amazing. Um, number six. So, and the land was not able to bear them, that they may dwell together, for their substance was great, so that they could not dwell together. Um, so I'm going to drop this commentary on here that a bunch of ends and X's. <laughs> All right. Um, okay, so what they're saying. So what caused Lot to separate from his uncle? From the above verse, we learn that they had too many possessions to continue to live in community. Lot became possessed by his possessions. He was in the company of a great man, Abram, and chose his possessions over his uncle. And then I want to quote, the early believers in Yeshua seem to have kept this in mind and dealt with the problem by selling their possessions, have everything in common. And this is the Acts 2 church, which we know um, they believe were together, had everything in common, sold their possessions, divided them amongst. And the more you read the, those Melchizedek literature, that's that's the order of Melchizedek. It's 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 that kind of stuff. Um, okay, so I just want to share that. Number eight. So and Abram said unto the Lot, that let there be no strife. I pray thee between me and thee, and between my herdmen and thy herdmen, for we be brethren. And the word study today uh, is on that word strife and um it's actually meribah so psalms 106:32. they also provoked him to wrath at the waters of meribah or strife so that it went badly for moses on their account because they were rebellious against his spirit he spoke rashly with his lips so strife rebellious against his spirit spoke rashly with his lips let's do a nice little word study on this Strife, place of strife from the verb to contend. And then you see there's two instances. The first one, Meribah, which I uh, I actually quoted Psalms, but it's basic, that verse is quoting Exodus. And it's, you know, I, I'm very familiar with Exodus 17 because I've, when I was doing my, my research on the seven churches of Revelation, uh, it links to Philadelphia being saved from this, this. And so you can link it to Hebrews 3.8, which is quoting the Psalms verse, which is quoting Exodus. And so if there is a second Exodus, or there used to be, uh, Philadelphia was saved from that, it seems. Um, and then the other one is where Miriam died. That was the same place, Meribah. Um, okay, so number 10, it says, And Lot lifted up his eyes, and behold, all the plain of Jordan, that it was well watered everywhere before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah even as the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt, as thou comest unto Zoar. And then if you look at the Palestinian, I'm going to have to post this for those who aren't reading it. Look at that. That's way different. So Lot lifted up his eyes towards the place of fornication and beheld all the plain of Jordania. So if you're 
got your KV, KGV, obviously it doesn't say fornication. Um, that it was altogether well watered, same as KGV. Before the Lord in his wrath had destroyed Sodom and Amorah, a land admirable for trees, as the garden of the Lord and for fruitage and for the land of Mitzrayim. So that's interesting. It's, it's saying it was fruitful. It's saying he chose it. Babylon gives you a lot of good things, right? From the from your that from your flesh, right? That's probably what Lot's wife was looking at. So it had a, a, he he probably was thinking selfishly, like, oh man, I'm gonna go choose that. I, that's a good start. Good start to uh, build build my cities. Um, number thirteen, it says, but the men of Sodom were wicked and sinners before the Lord exceedingly. Um, another word study. So the the word for and sinners, there was a bunch. I'm only going to choose this one, and I think it's awesome. So, well, not for the wicked. <laughs> Psalms 1, 4. The wicked are not so, but they are like chaff, like wheat and chaff, which the wind blows away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in judgment, nor sinners in the assembly of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. And then obviously, uh, you know, I think of what Yeshua said, Matthew three twelve. His one-winged fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor. And will gather his wheat into the barn. He will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. So it's that same wheat and chaff that these men of Sodom had that will be split up. Wheat at that very end split up, and the chaff will be burned up. And if you've done any research on the whole the wheat study, you know it was ran through a tribulum board, or you know which is tribulation. I mean that's where they got the word tribulation. So that's where they. Ran the wheat. Okay. Um, I want to talk about the Palestinian in this verse. So KGV just says, but the men of Sodom were wicked and sinners before the Lord exceedingly. Okay, straight to the point. Palestinian says, and the men of Sodom were depraved in their wealth, one with another, and they sinned in their bodies. How do you do that? They sinned with open nakedness and the shedding of innocent blood. And practiced strange worship and rebelled greatly against the name of the Lord. So a little bit more detail there. So Masoretic, just straight to the point, wicked sinners. Um, Palestinian does a way better job. And this will be a repeat, and I've cut a, cut a few verses short, but I wanted to do a repeat from my Jude study. If you were with us for the Hebrew Jude, I went through a bunch of verses that talk about Sodom and Gomorrah, or the cities of the plain, they were called. And, you know, most people automatically go straight for the homosexuality. I want to read a few descriptions of Sodom and Gomorrah to show that it was way more than that. And again, the Palestinian did a better job than the Masoretic. So Isaiah associates Sodom with shameless sinning and tells Babylon that it will end like those two cities. Jeremiah Lamentations associates Sodom and Gomorrah with adultery and lies. It prophesies the fate of Edom and predicts the fate of Babylon and uses Sodom as a comparison. Ezekiel compares Jerusalem to Sodom, saying, Behold, this was the iniquity of thy sister Sodom. Here it is, pride, fullness of bread, and careless ease was in her and her daughters. Neither did she strengthen the hand of the poor and needy, and they were haughty and committed abominations before me. That sounds like America. <laughs> Prideful, full of, we have abundance. Careless ease was in her daughters, did not strengthen the hand of the poor and needy. Wisdom of Solomon says, wisdom, and I love this one, this is Wisdom of Solomon 10, Wisdom rescued a righteous man when the ungodly were perishing. He escaped the fire that descended on the five cities. Evidence of their wickedness still remains, a continually smoking wasteland. 
plants bearing fruit that is not ripened, and a pillar of salt standing as a monument to the unbelieving soul. For because they passed wisdom by, they not only were hindered from recognizing the good, but also left for mankind a reminder of their folly. Sirach says, Yah did not spare the, the neighbors of Lot, whom he loathed on account of their insolence, or rude or disrespectful behavior. So those are another two adjectives for Sodom. Two more. In Maccabee, in 3rd Maccabees, the high priest Simon says that Yah consumed with fire and sulfur the men of Sodom who acted arrogantly, who were notorious for their vices, and you made them an example to those who come afterwards. And 2nd Ezra says, it describes the signs of the end times, one of which that is the sea of Sodom shall cast up fish. And also Ezra says that Abraham prayed for the people of Sodom. That would be, you'd be very humble to do that. We should be doing that. Um, Jeremiah says we should be praying for Babylon as we're in the dispersion. Finally, and I'll hand it back to Uftanol, Jubilees 13 says, In the fourth year of this week, Lot parted from him, and Lot dwelt in Sodom. And the men of Sodom were sinners exceedingly, and it grieved him in his heart that his brother's son had parted from him, for he had no children. So Abraham really loved Lot, his brother's son. It grieved him that he chose the holy possessions in Sodom instead of staying with him. And he had no children, and we'll talk about that later. I will stop there. Still have a little bit left, and a lot on 14, and after all. Verse 14 says this, And Yahuwah said to Abram, after that Lot had separated from him, Lift up now thine eyes, and look from the place where thou art, to the north and to the south, to the east and to the west. Isn't it interesting that Yahuwah's blessing of Abraham happens only after Lot leaves the camp? In this story, we have seen three types of people, by my calculation. In one corner, we have Abram, the father of our faith. In the other, we have Nimrod, the adversary of faith and father of rebellion. He's the prototype of the Antichrist. And then in the center, we have Lot, a mixture of faith and rebellion. Having a knowledge of Elohim, but endlessly feeling a magnetic pull into the world. I, I almost wrote gravitational pull, but I, I crossed the, checked that out and put magnetic. Is this the sort of person being talked about in Revelation 3.15 when we hear about the lukewarm, which says, and we all know this, I know your works that you are neither cold nor hot. I could wish you were cold or hot. So then because you are lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, nor hot I will vomit you out of my mouth. That's quite the picture that that Yahusha will stick a finger in his throat and gag until he vomits these people out. I was commenting earlier tonight in in the Romans chapter six that that clearly Yahusha he re, he will reject people, and uh, that should cause us all to uh, not fear in a uh, like you know a, a horror sense way, but a fear of Yah that will put us on our knees and repent and just pray that he will not forsake us that he will be with us and he will teach us and instruct us and um, that's my prayer well here's some scripture regarding abraham and i wanted to go through some of this to, to see some of his character traits so we see in beersheath 12 1 which we went over a couple weeks ago it says now yahuwah said to abram get out of your country from your family and from your father's house i'm reading from the masoretic to a land that i will show you I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great, and you shall be a blessing. 
I will bless those who bless you, and I will curse those who curse you. And in, in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So Abram departed as Yahuwah had spoken to him, and Lot went with him. And Abram was 75 years when he departed from Haran. Uh, so we see him in faith uh, stepping forward. And then we get to this in Philippians 1.6. Uh, um, being confident of this very thing, that he who has begun a good work in you will complete it until the day of Yahusha, the uh, Hamashiach. So Paul is saying here that, that he's at work in us to complete something, but then look at the follow-up. Now, although we know that it was Yahuwah who took the initiative in Abram's life, we know also that Abram's response was immediate, uh, thorough, and full of faith. Actually, no, it doesn't say that there. That was my commentary. Never mind. But but let's see what it says in, in Beersha 2.4. So Abram departed as Yahuwah had spoken to him. That's what I meant. Uh, and I, I blit that in. It looked like it was I was reading from the verse. Anyway, so Abram departed as Yahuwah had spoken to him. A lot went with him. And Abram was 75 years old when he departed for Haran, which I just read. But that's why I wanted to show that it was an it was immediate response for Abraham. Well, then let's look at what we read in chapter 15, verse 6 of Genesis, Beersheath. And he believed in Yahuwah, and he accounted it to him for righteousness. Romans 4, 3 says, For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed Yah, and it was accounted to him for righteousness. We were going through that in my Roman study, obviously. Galatians 3, 6 says this, Just as Abraham believed Yah, and it was accounted to him for righteousness. We're seeing a repeated theme. Yaakov says in uh, chapter 2, verse 23, and the scripture was fulfilled, which says, Abraham believed Yah, and it was accounted to him for righteousness. And this is where it starts to get good. And he was called the friend of Yah. All right. So, um, you know, we, we've heard it before that, you know, like uh, growing up in evangelicalism, that, you know, we're all friends of Yah. Well, you know, not everyone in Scripture was called a friend of Yah. Abraham was called a friend of Yah. So let's see how this develops. Isaiah 41.8 says, But you, Yasharel, my servant, Yah, are, are my servant, Yaakov, whom I have chosen, the descendants of Abraham, my friend. That's what he calls him in Isaiah. Abraham, my friend. In Yochanan, or John, chapter 10, verse 3, we hear this. The sheep, the sheep hear his voice. And he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. And when he brings out his own sheep, he goes before them and the sheep follow him for they know his voice. So that's, of course, a characteristic of Abraham following the voice of his, his master into um, a land where he did not know where he was going, which is what it says in Hebrews eleven eight. It says, by faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to the place which he would receive as an inheritance. And he went out not knowing where he was going. First Samuel uh, thirteen fourteen says this: "But now your kingdom shall not continue." Yahuwah has sought for himself a man after his own heart, um, and Yahuwah commanded him to be commander over his people, because you have not kept what Yahuwah commanded you. Faith is a quality of response to the Almighty that is expressed in trust, reliance, commitment, and obedience. Faith turned towards Yahuwah begins with one simple step of obedience, like Abraham leaving Babylon, predicated on what the Father has revealed to us. Then what happens 
does Yah helps to develop that faith. And I've been going over this in Romans over and over and over again. And what happens is, is that most Christians get stuck in this rut by their own admission, by their own testimony, that all you need is, you know, faith. Just a little baby step. Take that baby. You're, you're good to go. It's like, no, that's the first step that you take. You, you take that baby step. And then Yahuwah keeps leading us and leading us and causing us to grow. And we are supposed to become more obedient to him. That's the whole purpose. Yeah, we're not going to get it all down at first. We're not going to get everything down. It was commented on here about how far we've been removed from the Michelle Zedeks. Here in America, we put high uh, priority and emphasis on private property. And uh, you know, the, the country was founded under these kind of principles, the right to private property. And I'm not advocating communism by any means. Uh, but you know, if we are hoarders and we're, you know, just filling our houses with things just for ourselves and our benefit, these are the treasures on the earth that are going to burn. And, um, you know, to give the, the right perspective here, I think, is that um, obviously I can't be, I'm not Abraham. Okay. I don't have, uh, according to the writings of uh, Abraham, I don't have 50 daughters, you know, running around. I don't have like seven or eight to 10 wives. I don't have thousands of manservants. Uh, working for me, right? I have I have a family, and then we bring people into our house, and we feed them, and take care of them, and give them things, or whatever their needs are. Uh, we try to fulfill people's needs, uh, but the the context here seems to be that amongst he, Abraham had a huge amount of children, huge amounts of servants, and his his prosperity was um, the way a kingdom works is that uh, the king's glory is in the prosperity of his subjects, all right? If you're in a—the kind of kingdom you want to live in is where—not where the people are toiling to, you know, build a, a a vacation retreat for the flamboyant king on his weekends, you know, hunting trips that is like gold staircases that you will never see, right? No, it's like, no, a good king— um, distributes his wealth to the people in ways that they are also wealthy. And um, that's what it is to be in the Michelle's of the priesthood, that as Yahuwah gives you things, you then distribute that for the needs of the people. And the more you give, the more he's going to give you, the wealthier you become um, for those, for those reasons. All right. Hopefully that makes sense to everyone. So obviously nobody in this room is probably as wealthy as I doubt anyone in this room has like 6,000, thousand man servants uh working for you right now uh but you know hopefully when we invite people into our house that we have their needs on our heart and be like what can i do for you you need to, you know I'll give you an example we have we have a, a single truck uh, it's a ford f-350 great truck it pulls a 42 foot fifth wheel uh, but we had to have a lot of work done on the engine which means we had no car no big deal we're just like okay we'll go two weeks without a car you know we'll just be home buddies. No big, we won't go anywhere. Well, some other people in the Torah community here in South Carolina uh, found out that we were without a car and they're like, uh, take our car. And we're like, really? And they're like, yeah, just take it as long as you need it. So we have their car for two weeks. It was a huge blessing. Like they were saying, our things are your things. This is the attitude, you know, we need to have. It'd be like, all the things that Yah has given me, these are for you, you know, you, whatever you need. All right. Moving on, Matthew. Uh, oh, this is interesting. Kepha the Talmudim also exhibited qualities of Abraham's faith. This is what it says in Matthew four eighteen, and you, uh, Yeshua 
or Yahusha, walking by the Sea of Galilee, saw two brothers, Simon called Peter and Andrew, his brother, or Andre and Kepha, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. Then he said to them, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. They immediately left their nets and followed him. That's exactly what Abram did. So look what happens in Yochanan 1514. Yahusha says, you are my friends. If, if, you are my friends, if, he puts a lot of conditions in there, Yahusha. It's not the Jesus of modern the modern world but if you do whatever i command you no longer do i call you servants for a servant does not know what his master is doing but i have called you friends there it is so up to this point we've only seen abraham called friend but now his own talmudim are his friends for all things that i heard from my father i have made known to you you did not choose me but i chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruits and that you should remain that whatsoever you ask the father in my name, he may give you. So they were friends of Yah because they did whatever he commanded them. And uh, as Sarah just commented in here, she said, I want to be called his friend. I absolutely do too. Um, I want to be told the words, well done, good and faithful servants. And um, which of course in this, he may not say that. He say, might say, well done, good and faithful friend. Uh, I would love to hear that as well. So any back over to you, Michael. That's it for uh, this chapter for me. So go ahead and finish it up. All right, sounds good. Yeah, I don't have much left on thirteen. Um, and I just want to say too, like like you said, we're not advocating communism, but it, and I, I'm such a noob on this too. But the more the, what I have researched on the order of Melchizedek is it's just the order. It's so a lot of the laws that you would quote in the Old Testament for private property are in the you know that's for those for those tribes this is just like a special order like a step ahead kind of thing um greater in the kingdom kind of thing it would be my guess um but okay so number 16 and i will make thy seed as the dust of the earth so that if a man can number the dust of the earth then shall thy seed also be numbered okay so a couple of word studies i'm just gonna post it because i'm not sure you guys can follow when i'm reading words here but um so the genesis one genesis 28 i am the lord god of your father abraham and god of isaac and the god of isaac the land in which you lie i will give to you and to your descendants your descendants will also be like the dust of the earth so this is talking about isaac same word as abraham so they are under the same you know promise second chronicles solomon 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 had a similar promise with David. So Solomon said to God, You have dealt with my father David with great loving kindness and have made me king in his place. Now, Lord God, your promise to my father David is fulfilled, for you have made me king over people as numerous as the dust of the earth. So it's two positives for dust of the earth, similar to what Yah did with Abraham. And here's a bad instance. I'll just start on 42 in 2 Samuel. They looked, but there was none to save, even the Lord, but he did not answer them. Then I pulverized them as the dust of the earth. So again, it's not universal, always positive, but um, yeah, so that, that was a negative one as well. So a word study also on then thy seed shall be numbered. So let's see, First Kings 3, where do I want to start? Number 7, and now Lord my God, you have made your servant king in place of my father David. This is Solomon again. Yet I am a, like a little boy. I do not know how to go out or come in. And your servant is in the midst of your people who you have chosen, a great people who are too many to be numbered or counted. So that's the same word. 
So thy seed will also be numbered. And then Solomon says the same thing. Those chosen people that you have picked are too many to be numbered or counted. What do you guys make about that? You know, it's, um, that's talking about salvation, right? You know, I don't know. Uh, everybody has their different opinions on who's going to be saved. Nikki posted, and I found that book too, one in 33,000 will be saved. I, I forgot which book that was. Um, uh, number 17, arise, walk through the land and the length of it and in the breadth of it, for I will give it unto thee. Now, I thought this was cool. So after the visual acquisition of the land, Yahweh commanded Abram to make a second spiritual conquest by walking the land that Yah had promised. So it was the custom of ancient rulers to assert their sovereignty over their land by symbolically tracing out its boundaries. This is the intent in Yah's command to travel the length and breadth of the country. So when you buy property, you walk it. And that's at least this custom that I found of ancient rulers doing the same to assert their sovereignty. Now we have, you know, <laughs> other people to do that for us, uh, surveyors. Uh, number 18, then Abram removed his tent and came and dwelt in the plain of Mamre, which is in Hebron, and built there an altar. We've talked previously about every time he built an altar, priest built an altar um, to give praise. Um, the name Hebron in Hebrew means confederacy. So it's suggesting that several different groups who lived in the area were united in alliance. So he overtook that confederacy in Hebron. That was cool. A couple of chiastic structures. So um, because of famine, the promised land could not sustain Abram. He and his wife and all that he had and Lot went with him into the south. Abram was very rich in cattle and silver and gold. And, and he went on his journeys from the south. Because of their great substance, the promised land could not sustain both Abram and Lot. So there's your verses. It shows you the chiasm there. That's pretty cool. Another chiasm. Events of the narrative from Genesis 13 can be arranged in a chiastic pattern. Identifying the focus of the narrative of Abraham's offer of the land to Lot versus God's offer of the land to Abram. Abraham prayed at God's altar at Bethel with Lot. Abram's generous offer of the land to Lot. Lot chooses the land to the east. God's generous offer of the land to Abram. Abraham, Abram praying at God's altar at Hebron alone. Another chiasm. And last one on 13 for me. Jamatria, John Q's in the house. Okay, so a matter of text, textual gematria regarding the promise to make Abraham's name great. Sages noted that the total number of Hebrew letters in the names of the three patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, is 13. Likewise, the total number of letters in the names of the three matriarchs, Sarah, Rebecca, and Leah, and Rachel, is 13. I don't know why there's four there. doesn't make sense. Furthermore, 13 is the, the numeric value of the word akkad, a word that means unity and represents the 13 attributes of Yah's mercy. The combined letters of the patriarchs and matriarchs therefore totals 26, the same numeric value as that for the name of God. Again, whether you believe in Jumatra or not, I thought that was pretty cool. Um, so, if Noel, you want to start on 14? Yeah, sure. So, all right, starting on chapter 14, and this is the epic. Genesis 14 war. And it came to my attention this week as I was sitting down to, to study this. That I was like, I've never written on this before. I, it just, it has totally been off my radar. I mean, I've obviously known it existed, 
uh, I haven't done any much work on this. So I didn't have a lot to go off of. And that, that was a little alarming for me. And perhaps I can change that in the future. So the first thing we see, and I, I know that Michael probably wants to comment on this some, is that we see in verse one, it says, Amraphil, and it was, it was in the, the days of Amraphil, and then it adds there in the Targum, he is Nimrod, who commanded Abram, Abram to be cast in the furnace. So that's interesting that it's saying that, um, that this same Amraphil, or is the same Nimrod, and it goes with my theory that Nimrod went by many different names. And so what if, for whatever reason here, he's going by Amraphil. Did he also go by Gilgamesh, right? Did he go by other names? We don't really know. Um, however, I'm going to point out, I'll be talking about this a little bit later. Well, why not now? Okay, the Targum says Amraphil is Nimrod, whereas others, uh, translations or books I read says, say, says uh, son of Nimrod. So which is it? Nimrod or son of Nimrod? Son of Nimrod may also mean grandson of Nimrod. It could just mean the seed of Nimrod. So again, which is it there? Could the spirit of Nimrod be inhabiting Amraphil? I've talked about that in the past. Uh, or could the right could could Nimrod actually be dead by this point? Uh, could Shem have actually taken the sword and and uh, hewn him in two? Or could the writers of the Targum simply be stating that he was Nimrod and being his? Uh, Next in line, the next in line in Nimrod. I don't really know. Uh, so this is where, how the, the keep in mind, this is a Targum of a Targum, right? We're reading the Aramaic Targum from the Hebrew, and the Aramaic Targum has been turned into English. So a Targum of a Targum. Is it saying that, uh, I can't read the Aramaic, is it saying that Amraphil is Nimrod, or is he the seed of Nimrod, the son of Nimrod, the line of Nimrod? I don't really know. All right. So here's... I'll give you a few minutes here where I'm reading that he is the son of Nimrod. But here's the scene. Here's what happened. Nimrod was setting his children and thrones across a large swath of land, which would further ensure that his kingdom would expand. Uh, probably next week, I'll be going over how Eliezer, uh, we might mention that this week. Mike, I think it comes up this week. Eliezer was the son of Nimrod. So that's interesting that the son of Nimrod is in Abraham's camp. I mean, he's got children everywhere. He's got plants everywhere. Um, and that would only make sense that he wants to increase his kingdom. Uh, there's only so much he can do from one throne. So he's got to, he's got a bunch of wives, got a bunch of sons, starts planting them everywhere who are going to pay homage to him as God, right? Um, so the kings of Canaan no longer wanted to be in Nimrod's confederacy. Uh, seven years have gone by. And there's this king named Chedorlaomer, uh, and the kings that were with him uh, came and attacked the kings of Canaan uh, for, for not paying their dues. This is, by the way, the first war that is ever recorded for us in Scripture. And uh, I've pointed out that there was the, the 100,000 giant war which comes from a text that is not scripture in any way, shape, or form. It's the book of King Og. Take it for what it is, a grain of salt, a huge grain of salt, whatever. But this is the very first war, and what a war it is. There is an archaeologist named Nelson Gluick uh, who documented the destruction left by these kings in his research um, in that region. So this goes from the, the, the plains of the Jordan, kind of the Qumran area, going into Sodom and Gomorrah, down to the Dead Sea, down to the Red Sea, 
all the way to Saudi Arabia. It may have gone into Egypt. I'm not sure. But this is what he says, uh, his conclusions. I found that every village in their path had been plundered and left in ruins. And the countryside was laid waste. The population had been wiped out or led away into captivity. For hundreds of years thereafter, the entire area was like an abandoned cemetery, hideously unkept, with all its monuments shattered and strewn in pieces on the ground. Now, so what he's saying here is that essentially, when the Yahudim, not the Yahudim, the sons of Israel, Yasharil, were wandering through the wilderness uh, from Sinai, that it was a wilderness because of this war. This war was so catastrophic. I mean, they wiped out and killed, massacred just tons of people. This was a awful, awful war. And uh, to the point that they didn't even rebuild their whatever weapons they were using, they didn't even rebuild there for the most part for hundreds of years. Um, so in verse 7, even states in the Targum, that the war went all the way down into Saudi Arabia to the very Mount Sinai. So it went a long ways down there. Here is how the writings of Abraham describes the conflict. Previous to this time, Amraphil, son of Nimrod. So you can see the divergent there. The writings of Abraham is identifying him with the son of Nimrod. Which it just it's again, it's interesting. Whoever is right here, whatever scribe is is right or wrong here. You've got two different accounts accrediting this Amraphil character to someone who is Nimrod or very, very close to Nimrod, ultimately um, doing the service to Nimrod or to himself. King of Shinar, there's a, uh, again, Cheddar Leomer, who I mentioned, King of Elam, Ariok, King of Cappadocia, and Tidal, King of Goyim in Mesopotamia, had waged war with Bera, King of Sodom, Bersha, King of Gomorrah, Shinna, king of Adma, Shemeber, uh, king of Zeboim, and the king of Bila. They assembled for combat in the Vale of Siddim, and the king of Shinar and his royal allies overcame the king of Sodom and his confederates and imposed tribute upon them. For 12 years, they paid their tribute to the king of Shinar. So I said seven years. I guess according to this, is 12 years. But in the 13th year, they revolted against him. In the 14th year, the king of Shinar led forth all his allies, and they went up along the way of the wilderness, attacking and plundering all who were confederate with the king of Sodom. But the king of Sodom, the king of Gomorrah, the king of Adma, the king of Zeboim, and the king of Bela came forth to battle and met Amraphel and his allies in the Vale of Siddim. However, Amraphel and his allies prevailed against them, and Bera, king of Sodom, turned and fled, and Bersha, king of Gomorrah, fell into the slime pits, which were in the Vale of Siddim and perished there. I like to know where these slime pits were. It's such an interesting idea that like this whole region was like Eden, just lush, green, beautiful. Uh, it's all you know salt waste now, but it, there was these slime pits there. It, it sounds like something from like um, I don't know, like the Princess Bride or something. You know, like those those uh, those big old rat creatures. You know, need to be walking around too. The, rema the remainder of the kings fled in unto the mountain, which was called Hannibal, and tarried there in great fear. All right. Um, and I'll go ahead and describe how Jasher describes the same war. I don't want to deal Michael Stunder if he's going to quote from Jasher, but I'm just going to read it just so you guys get a um, uh, 
comparison here. So Jasher chapter 16, and this is what it says. And at that time, Cheddar Laomer, king of Elam, sent to all the neighboring kings to Nimrod, king of Shinar. So there it actually says Nimrod. So that's interesting. So the, the Aramaic Targum agrees with Jasher on this one. And Nimrod, king of Shinar, who was then under his power, and to Tidal, king of Goyim, and to Ariot, king of Elisar, with whom he made a covenant, saying, Come up to me and assist me, that we may smite all the towns of Sodom and its inhabitants, for they have rebelled against me these 13 years. And these four kings, um, that's essentially how it says that they have rebelled against me these 13 years. When we read, there was 12 years and then the 13th year of rebellion. So, hmm. And these four kings went up with all their camps, about 800,000 men. And they were they went as they were and smote every man they found in their road. So they're massacring everybody they see. 800,000 men are coming. They just kill everybody. And the five kings of Sodom and Gomorrah, Shinab, king of Adma, Shemeb, uh, Shemeber, king of Zeboim, Bera, king of Sodom, and Bersha, king of Gomorrah, and Bela, king of Zoar, went out to meet them, and they all joined together in the valley of Siddim. And these nine kings made war in the valley of Siddim, and the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah were smitten before the kings of Elam. And the valley of Siddim was full of slime pits, and the kings of Elam pursued the kings of Sodom, and the kings of Sodom with their camps fled and fell into the slime pits, and all that remained went to the mountain for safety. And the five kings, these must have been huge slime pits uh, to and trap and fall, all these people fall in them. And the five kings of Elam came after them and pursued them to the gates of Sodom, and they took all that there was in Sodom. So, bummer. So, so, again, now, remember, Lot is going there. Why? So he could have private possession, and then he loses all of it. And they plundered all the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah, and they also took Lot, Abram's brother's, uh, brother's son, and his property, and they seized all the goods of the cities of Sodom, and they went away. And eunuch, Abraham's servant, who was in the battle, saw this and told Abram all the things that had done to the cities of Sodom, and that Lot was taken captive by them. Now, keep in mind here, we see uh, a, a name of a different person. It doesn't say Og. It says eunuch Abram's servants. And in fact, the other account, Writings of Abraham, talks about um, uh, one of Lot's servants Come, So which is it? Is it Lot's servant, Abraham's servant, or um, a third option? You know, are there three things happening here? Which is, by the way, when we find these in text, I, it's very possible that there were probably multiple people reporting to Abram, not just one guy. Like it would, you know, multiple people coming and say, "Hey, this this happened." And Abram heard this, and he rose up with about three hundred and eighteen men that were with him. And he that that night pursued these kings and smote them, and they all fell before Abram and his men. And there was none remaining but the four kings who fled, and they went each his own road. And Abram recovered all the property of Sodom. And he also recovered Lot and his property, his wives and little ones and all belonging to him, so that Lot, Lot lacked nothing. Well, isn't that nice of him? And when he returned from smiting these kings, he and his men passed the valley of Sodom, Siddim, where the kings had made war together. And Barak, king of Sodom, and the rest of his men that were with him went out from the lime pits, the slime pits, into which they had fallen to meet Abram and his men. All right, I'm cutting it off there, and I'll have more commentary, but back to you, Michael. Let you take over. All right, awesome stuff. Um, so I don't have much on the cast in the furnace either. It's 
but I do want to highlight it again, just so if people so the very first verse in KGV it says, and it came to pass in the days of Amraphel, king of Shinar, Ariat, king of Elisar, Chedalomar, king of Elam, and Tidal, king of the nations. And then look at the difference here. It says he's Nimrod, Amraphel, who commanded Abram to be cast into the furnace. Tall among giants, uh, bondman of the king of Elam, crafty as a fox. So way different in the Targum. Um, I saw a commentary that said Genesis 14 is the only chapter of Genesis to contain accounts of great political events rather than the history of a family. So I thought that was interesting. Um, some people were making the case that this was the first world war. Um, so rabbinic tradition stated that Amraphel was called by three names, Cush after his father's name, Nimrod because he established a rebellion in the world, and Amraphel but that doesn't make sense. And as he declared, I will cast down. So, and this was cool. They also taught in this verse that wherever the Bible employs the term, and it was, and it came to pass. So in the KGV, it says, and it came to pass in the days of Amraphel. As it does here, it indicates misfortune. And let me show you. So I just, this is the first four times it's used. That all negative. So, and in the process, it came to pass that Cain brought forth of the fruit of the ground. And Genesis 4, 8, and Cain talked with Abel's brother, and it came to pass, and he slew him. Genesis 6, and it came to pass when men began to multiply on the face of the earth. And Genesis 7, and it came to pass after seven days, the waters of the floods were open. So I thought that was pretty cool, pretty good uh, uh, notation there, um, that anytime it says, and it came to pass, and I'm a... I'm going to go on a limb and say it's not every time, but I thought that was a good assumption that, or a good notice that when it says, and it came to pass, it's usually a negative connotation. Um, so number two and number seven, I'm just going to, for those who aren't reading along, look at this difference. So this KGV Masoretic takes a lot of this out. So I just want to read some of it. So Bera, whose deeds were evil, Bersha, whose deeds were with the wicked, Shinob, who hated his father, and Shemibar, who corrupted himself with fornication. This goes way different than the Masoretic and kind of describes each king and how evil they were. Um, so I'm going to do the same with number seven. Um, again, the Masoretic doesn't do anything. This. Um, Palestinian says, And they returned and came to the place where was rendered the judgment of Moshe, the prophet, to the fountains of the waters of strife, or Meribah, which I talked about earlier which is Rechaim, and they smote all the fields of the Amaleki. And so I thought that was interesting. The judgment of Moses, the prophet, and the fountain of waters of strife. That's where they returned. Okay, number 10. I'm not sure where Noah left off, but I will at least do 10 and see where we're at. So it says, let's see. And the Valley of Siddim was full of slime pits. Yeah, because Noah did talk about this. I'll stop here. And the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah fled and fell there, and there that remained fled to the mountain. Palestinian says, and the valley of the gardens had many pits filled with bitumen, like the Tower of Babel. We talked about bitumen a while ago. And the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah fled away. Okay, so I am going to, so this we're studying the, the slime pit. So what are the slime pits? Um, wow, that's a lot of Hopefully you guys can follow along. Genesis 26, 15, 
Um, I'm going to start on number 18. It says, but this is the context if you want to read along. And it's very similar because it actually says the wells which his father's servants had dug in the days of his father Abraham. So it's talking about the same thing. Number 18 says, then Isaac dug again the wells of water. So that the word the wells is the same as slime pits. So it's water plus mud, it appears. Um, For the Philistines had stopped them up into the death of Abraham, and he gave them the same names which his father had given them. But when Isaac's servants dug in the valley and found there a well of flowing water, the herdsmen of Gerar quarreled with the herdsmen of Isaac, saying, the water is ours. So he named the well Essek because they argued. And it continues and continues. They're talking about wells here. But I thought it was interesting that the word slime pits, it just, these word studies connect a lot. And in this instance, it's the same wells that his father dug. So I thought that was pretty cool. Um, also the word study on they that remain fled to the mountain. So the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah fled to the mountain. This can't be good, right? So um, word study time again. Um, I think it's just easier for you guys to follow along if I do this. I have longer than 2,000 characters. Okay, so let me take this out. So the first one, Leviticus 26. Um, I'll just read the first few. Then the land will restore its Sabbaths all the days of desolation. Why, while you are in your enemy's land, then the land will rest and restore its Sabbaths. All the days of its desolation, it will have the rest, which it did not have on your side, while you were living with. As for those among you who are left, same scenario, I will bring despair into their hearts, into the lands of their enemies. So again, those ones who are fleeting are, are bad. He'll bring despair into their hearts. And it's actually the same words in number 39. Um, so those of you who may be left will rot away because of their wrongdoings. So again, it's people that are trying to flee Saddam Gomorrah for the wrong reason, it appears. They're trying to escape the wrath. He will, he will take care of that. You know, there'll be justice. Deuteronomy 19, uh, I'll start in 18. The judges shall investigate thoroughly, and the witness is a false witness. And he has accused his brother falsely. Then he shall also do to him just as he had intended to do his brother. Thus you, sh- you shall purge evil from among you. The rest, the same word, the rest, or those who are left, will hear and be afraid and will never again do such an evil thing among you. Okay, so again, they fear. Rot away. Bring despair in their hearts. Again. And finally, uh, the Ezekiel passage. 21. All the choice men and all his troops will fall by the sword and the survivors. So the rest, those who are left, they remain fled. The survivors is the same word. They will be scattered to every wind, and you will know that I, the Lord, have spoken. What do you guys make of this? I just, I guess my first initial instinct is if you are fleeing Sodom and Gomorrah and not going to Yah's protection, this is what will be done to you. So it's pretty interesting. I'll stop there. I still have a lot left, but I'll have back to know. I don't think I have as much as you do tonight. Uh, one of the interesting things here is we see that the big surprise in the Aramaic tar- Targum is that Og shows up. And I'll just go ahead and read this again, just in case you missed this before, in case you were nodding off. It says in verse 13, an Og came. And you're like, what? This was the apparently the servant that came to warn Abraham. And and I, as I've mentioned, you read different texts. Uh, I didn't read Jubilees, but 
usually it's just the servant, the servant. It'll say like the servant of Abraham, the servant of Lot. Um, the name was, I think, given in Jasher, though, of somebody else. And it says, and Og came who had been spared from the giants that died in the deluge. And I find that fascinating. It's like, where in the world? Where where the 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 scribes of the at least at least the Aramaic Targum getting this from? Keep in mind this was written, in my opinion, before Yahushua walked the earth, uh, the Aramaic Targum, and uh, and I have shown in the past. I'm not going to read from it again that uh, one of the most blasphemous books you can ever read is called the Lost Book of King Gog, uh, which was there were there were a couple copies of them. Surprise, surprise, that were found in the Vatican vaults. They were there all along, and so. Clearly, there was a understanding in the ancient world that Og predated the flood, because according to the, the Book of King Og, he lived before the flood. And um, the question is then: is how old is, is this guy? If it's appointed for someone to live like about a thousand years, I've done the math on this, and this guy seemed to live; he had to have lived more than a thousand years. I, I can't rationalize it any other way. And uh, this guy had to be ancient; he would have been a god on the earth. I mean, clearly, like this guy would have been. Anyways, here's what it says. Who had been spared from the giants that died in the deluge and had ridden protected upon the top of the ark. Okay. And sustained with food by, by Noah, not being spared through high righteousness, but that the inhabitants of the world might see the power of Yahuwah and say, were there, were there not giants who in the first times rebelled against Yahuwah of the world and perished from the earth? But when these kings made war, behold, Og was with them and said in his heart, I will go and show Abram concerning Lot, who was led captive, that he may come and deliver him from the hands of the kings into whose hands he has been delivered. And he arose and came upon the eve of the day of the Pasha, that's the Passover, the eve of the Passover, and found uh, Abram making the unleavened cakes, getting ready for the feast of uh, unleavened. Then showing, then showed he to Abram the Hebrew who dwelt in the valleys of Mamre and Morah, brother of Eshkol and brother of Aner, who were men of covenant with Aram. Okay. Again, so I've gone over how old he is. Uh, and Og reminds me of Yojimbo. Does anybody know what that film is? It's a Japanese film. And they will... Interesting little mud flood history here. If you go to any kind of film 101 class, whatever... You read about the history film. They will tell you that the American cowboy in cinema was uh, invented uh, and copied from the samurai, from the, the the samurai films of the 1940s and 50s around then. And we're talking at this point of like Clint Eastwood and his films, like the the, the good and the bad and the ugly, that whole trilogy, the uh, fistful of dollars that was all taken from Japanese samurai films. And in the film Yojimbo, you have a a lone samurai who is he's wandering through the countryside of Japan of, of feudal Japan and he comes across a village and when he enters this village he learns that it is divided by two separate gangs and they're at war with each other and over the whole course of the movie the two separate samurai ninja gangs uh, they are they are bringing Yojimbo into their allegiance to go kill off the other tribe. So he goes and he kills off a bunch of people. And the other people are like, we can't defeat you. Can you join our side? So he joins their side and goes and kills the other people. By the end of the movie, he basically kills everybody in the town and he just walks away. He like he takes out both sides. He's like the Trojan horse in both of them. And this, this scene reminds me of that because Og had no love for Abraham whatsoever. 
he, he hated you. And in the last book of King Og, it's interesting because he claims he survived the flood. He never says how. He never gives you a credit. According to this, it, he had to have been on the ark as nobody else survived. So he's on the ark, which is, I get it. It's a little humorous scene. It's like, you know, we never see in, in illustrations of the ark that Og is riding on it. Uh, but um, he would have only survived based on Yahuwah giving him um, clear uh, passage. And he never gives credit to Yahuwah. And that's really important in his whole story. So he is, we will see later on in the tour, if we ever get there uh, of the Targum, why he lived as long as he did. Uh, eventually I'll give you a the surprise ending is that Moshe personally kills Og. He takes an ax to him and takes him out. But the reason I think that Og here went and helped Abraham, it's because of his hatred of Nimrod. I mean, he seethed his teeth at Nimrod. He hated Nimrod. He is forming this confederacy and rebellion against Nimrod, and they lost. They were all killed off. And so in his thinking, like he would have known who Abraham is. He would have known that Abraham, that Nimrod also hated uh, Abraham. He tried to kill him multiple times. He threw him in coupled. Uh, there's that one fire furnace story. There's actually two of them. Twice he threw him in the fire. And... Um, August thinking, uh, the friend of uh, my enemy is also my friend, I guess, right? Like for this uh, for this occasion. So I think that's what's happening here. And, um, you know, he could have very well turned on uh, Abraham the next day, uh, for all we know. Um, but um, he would have, if it, if it took, uh, you know, Abraham's uh, Elohim, Yahuwah, to take out Nimrod, he was all for it at that moment. All right. So that being said. We have here an account of the only military action we ever find Abram engaged in. And this he was prompted to not by his ambition, but purely by a principle of charity. It was not to enrich himself, but to help out a friend and a relative lot. So he's, he seems that he's sitting out this whole war. Um, according to these accounts. Oh, Rebecca just posted something from Legends of the Jews. So <laughs> I have to read that. But um, I have but I have heard this stated time and again that Avram must have had some badass military men trained in combat. No, I'm not arguing against anybody who's a badass military person trained in combat. What I'm saying is that these people weren't that, despite what people claim. You know, they, they almost like like Abram's out there in the wilderness training his guys in Krav Maga. You know, they're out there, you know, like know how to like do like the death blow on people and this kind of stuff. I don't see that anywhere in any of the writings of Abraham. Um, but that again, that's how he's often described. And these men, in my opinion, were not trained military men, but trained in domestic duties. The battle was not fought with military genius or, gen or generals. It was a battle fought by faith. So when we when we're pushing this um, militant Abram, this badass, like it's almost like a scene from Commando. You know, he starts. He's like, you know, you finally made Abraham mad. Now you you really did it. You made him mad. He's coming to take out a whole army. You know, he's coming for you, um, like like Schwarzenegger in Commando, right? Um, but this is that takes away from the character of Abraham's faith. And I'll, I'll tell you a little bit more of the broader picture here. The, the Targum butchers that idea even further when stating that only one person went forward to battle. 
and he happened to be the son of Nimrod. With the advantage of surprise in, in the darkness of the night, Avram defeated an army that had gone undefeated for more than a decade. This army had never been defeated. And yet he is able to go there and take them all out. Why is that? Because was he was because he was so badass? No. The contrast needs to be made. The kings who revolted against Mesopotamia uh, rule were annihilated. The story seems to loom over Yasharel in the centuries to come like a like a shadow. If they obeyed Yahuwah as Abraham did, then they would destroy their enemies despite all odds. If they didn't they would come in and be conquered like those other kings. And that's what we're seeing here. Despite all odds, Abraham is able to go in and take out these people. Surprise attack. And that's the story that we see throughout Scripture. Like anybody, like a little shepherd boy like David could pick up some stones, take out a Nephilim, right? Nobody else was willing to do that, but the person with faith was able to do it. And um, I think that's the picture we're seeing here. So back to you, Michael. All right, great connection on Og versus Nimrod. I didn't even think about that. I was always wondering why he was doing the right thing, I guess, at the beginning. Um, I remember there's other books, too, that Nimrod was in Yah's favor at the beginning, too. So that's where I first went, but that was a good comparison. And then you did a great job on Og, so I'm not going to read the Palestinian. I will post it again, but there's one thing I do want to point out. that He approached them on the eve of the day of the Pasha, or Passover, found him making the 11 cakes <laughs> so that's awesome so abraham was getting ready for 11 bread it appears um so but this was cool too so og in biblical hebrew the closest word is oog oog which literally means bake a cake and so that's why maybe the targum says pasha or passover and then in phoenician og equals a supernatural being who attacks grave desecrators. Very interesting. Okay, so a few things on Og. Um, he is described as having height, like the height of cedars, whose strength was like that of oaks. Um, he was an Amorite king, the ruler of Bashan, Oga Bashan, which contains 60 walled cities and many unwalled towns. Several scholars argue that Bashan itself, Oak's kingdom, is a reference to the underworld. The name Bashan likely derives from serpent or dragon mentioned in several mythological texts. So I know I'm ahead of myself. This is Deuteronomy. I doubt we'll get to it in the Targums because that, that would take us 10 years, but sure, I could post the definition. Yep. Uh, that's the definition. And then, okay, so... Jeremiah 3.11 talks about Og's bed. So this is a big story when you research Og. So for only Og, king of Bashan, remained of the remnant of the giants. Behold, his bedstead was a bedstead of iron. Is it not in Rabath of the children of Anna? Nine cubits was the length thereof, and four cubits the breadth thereof. So the ancient Egyptian or biblical cubit measurements ranged from 18 to 21 inches, putting his bed at 15 feet long and six and a half feet wide. That would put his own height anywhere from 11 to 13 feet. So... If you if you're a basketball fan back in the day, Yao Ming was almost eight feet. You know he was he was like seven six or seven eight. Uh, add another four to seven feet <laughs> to him. Um, okay, so another thing on that. Let's see. Michael Heiser points out that the measure of his bed 
is a, the identical to those of the ritual bed of Marduk. And so I did. I was going down some weird stuff, so I didn't do that. But if you want to research that, the ritual bed of Marduk had the same measurements. Take that for what it's worth. Um, okay, so the Jewish Talmud. Now this is just a story. Again, you know, they they could go on a tangent here, but I thought it was cool. The Jewish Talmud states that Og was so large that he sought the destruction of the Israelites by uprooting a mountain so large that it would have crushed the entire Israelite encampment. Yah caused a swarm of ants to dig away the center of the mountain, which was resting on Og's head. The mountain then fell on Og's shoulders. Og attempted to lift the mountain off himself. Oh, wait, this is going to talk about what, what Rebecca was talking about. Yahuwah caused Og's teeth to lengthen outward, becoming embedded into the mountain. I wonder if we have pictures of that. That was now surrounding his head. Moses, fulfilling Yahweh's injunction not to fear him, seized a stick of 10 cubits length and jumped a similar vertical distance, succeeding in striking Og in the ankle. He fell down and died upon hitting the ground. Again, Talmud, Legend of Jews, supposedly talks about that as well. But I thought that was an interesting story on Og. Okay. All right, number 14. When Abraham heard that his brother was taken captive, he armed his trained servants, born in his own household, 318, and pursued them unto Dan. Okay, word study. I thought this was cool. Uh, Jeremiah 13, 16, starting with. Give, the, give glory to Yahuwah before he brings darkness and before your feet stumble on the dusky mountains. And while you are hoping for light, he makes it into deep darkness and turns it into gloom. But if you will not listen to it, my soul will sob in secret for such pride, and my eyes will bitterly weep and flow down with tears, because the flock of Yahuwah has been taken captive. So that and when Abram heard that his brother was taken captive, he earned he armed his trained servants. And when they when so if you do not listen, he's saying, My my soul will sob in secret for such pride, and my eyes will bitterly weep, because the flock had been taken captive. So the enemy stole one of the flocks, right? And so same thing with Abraham and Lot, it appears the same word. Okay, Palestinian, and no kind of hit on it. Let me post it for you guys. The brother was made captive. He armed his young men who were trained for war, grown up in his house, but they willed not to go with him. So his own trained men did not go with him. And he chose from them Eleazar, son of Nimrod, who was equal in strength to all the 318 he pursued Dan. So again, Masoretic, trained servants is equal to 318. Palestinian says they, those trained servants didn't want to go, and Eleazar, whose strength is equal to that. Okay, so as I said, Eleazar of Damascus was, according to the Targums, the son of Nimrod. Eleazar was the head of the patriarch Adam's household, as mentioned in the next chapter. We'll get to that next week. And Abram said, oh, so I'm going to read it. So, and Abram said, Lord God, what wilt thou give me, seeing I go childless? And the steward of my house is this Eliezer of Damascus. So some say Eliezer was a butler, steward, overseer. Others say he was given the name of Damascus by Abraham, who purchased Eliezer from Nimrod and passed through the city of Damascus while returning with his servant from Babylon. Um, other translations described Eliezer as Abraham's heir. Um, now, this was cool. According to most interpretation, the unnamed servant, the elder of Abraham's house that ruled over all that he had, 
in Genesis 24, who obtained Rebekah as a bride for Isaac was Eleazar. So if you remember the story, and I will post it, was Eleazar. He sent his servant to go, um, sent his oldest of his household, please place under a thigh. Makes, um, yeah, so he went to his, his uh, relatives to take a wife for his son Isaac. They're saying that this was Eliezer as well. So more numbers. Um, again, if Gematria is hit or miss for some people, that's totally cool. Um, wouldn't you know Eliezer's name equals 318? So each Hebrew letter has a corresponding numerical value. That's how you spell Eliezer. It equals 318. Um, so was Abraham's victory of the king's was not due to the assistance of 318 men, but of one single helper. And wouldn't you know, a literal translation of the name Eliezer means God is my hope. Interesting. So I'm going to ask the question. So did the military commander Abraham have a force of 318 armed soldiers with him? Or did he have only his prospective heir, Eliezer, and the Most High? Let's see. Let's see. I'm going to do up to 16. I'll hand it back to Noel. Um, KGV, again, does uh, number 15 does not go into detail Palestinian and he divided them at the night in a way a part was to engage with the kings and a part were hidden to smite the firstborn of Egypt and he arose he and his servants and smote them and pursued them which remained unto the place of the memorial of sin which was to be in Dan so the, the difference is let's see so and he divided himself against them he and his servants by night and smote them. So KGV does that. Where Palestinian says, smote the firstborn of Egypt. Way different. And then he pursued them in the place of the memorial of sin, which appears to be Hoba in the KGV. Hoba. Just wanted to point that out. Okay, 16, and then I'll hand it back to Noel. So it says, KGV says, and he brought back all the goods and also brought again his brother Lot and his goods and the women also and the people. So after his conquered... He conquered it. He brought back a lot. So I thought this was cool. Two battles. So at the beginning, the motive for the Mesopotamian attack, the rebellion of the Canaanite cities. The Mesopotamian king conquers rebellious southern kings. They plunder, plunder the southern kings. Lot is captured. The motive for Abram's attack. The Mesopotamian kings have captured his nephew. Abram and his allies conquer the retreating Mesopotamian army. They plunder the booty of the Mesopotamians, took from Canaan, and Lot is returned. All in the same chapter. I mean, amazing literature. Okay, so last thing, and I end it off to Noel. You know, I love doing comparisons between biblical characters. I've done it with Yeshua and Adam, Yeshua and Noah, Moses. How about even Lot? Even Lot. How about that? Choice was based on what looked good. Lot's choice was based on what looked good. Eve's choice was selfish. Lot's choice was selfish. Eve's choice resulted in separation from Yah. Lot's choice resulted in separation from Abram. Pretty cool, huh? And finally, the name Lot equals veil or covering. I'm just thinking about Abram being a covering for Lot. Um, taking care of an orphan of his brother, maybe, who died in that house fire. We talked about that last week, trying to save his burning idols that set Abram ablaze. So an atonement, I've talked about that. A covering is also an atonement or a pitch. Or Abraham was his covering. And maybe that's why his righteousness saved him. Similar to Yahuwah. 
Yahusha. I'll hand off the null here. That's what I got for 16. Oh, we can't hear you. At least I can't. Um, can anybody else hear? No. No. Okay. Uh, you want to come back in? Maybe I can continue. He's typing. Give me a second, mic turned off. Okay. Um, yeah, those comparisons help me too when I'm doing those studies. Blows my mind. I mean, it's the, all these comparisons and the way he repeats himself, it's definitely not written by man. You can see it written uh, divinely. Coming up to Melchizedek, obviously. I'm sure Noah will talk about that. Shem, the priestly order. Uh, ooh, I have some good stuff there, too. Let's see. Could, might be a good time to call it. Okay, can you hear okay. me? Can you hear me now? Oh, yeah. Okay. Yeah, we can hear you now. Okay, yep. cool. Yep, yep, yep. All right. Yeah, I was I was going to suggest that um, we maybe call it here anyways, because I have a lot, you know, we're getting into Michelzedek territory, and it's 10 o'clock, and we could pick this up easily next week. Uh, what you had said, though, was really fascinating about uh og in the phoenician and let me see if i can pull it up what you had said you said that in phoenician og equals a supernatural being who attacks grave desecrators and i had heard that before but for some reason i never put that together until just now and so it is my suggestion that if you if everyone recalls like two weeks ago last week remember when it was i said that the three odd players in this timeline, if we are transferring from the Masoretic over to the LXX, the three oddballs are Nimrod, Shem, and Og. And with Shem, it is my personal opinion that he was already uh, ascended, uh, I guess you could say dead, uh, resurrected, whatever. Like There was something special about him that he was like Enoch, that he was, uh, it is my contention that Shem school was a heavenly school and that, that by calling him Meshelzedek, that uh, he he is now, he is no longer Shem in the flesh. And I have put forward also with Nimrod that there may be different incarnations, versions of him, pre-flood, post-flood. Well, that's interesting because now I'm kind of thinking the same thing with Og, that there might be something much more going on with his kingdom here that is... Um, much more of a Lord of the Rings um, narrative that than I have ever given credit for before. So that's so, something to think about. And I had one other comment here, and now um, that's okay. So my suggestion, Michael, is it's 10 o'clock, and maybe we cut it off here and pick up next week. Are you good with that? Sounds great, yep. Yeah, because I wanted to talk about Second Enoch and stuff, and I'm just – it's been – it's been long for everybody, and uh, um, I want there to be light at the end of the tunnel. Did you have anything more than Michael you wanted to add uh, before we pick up on Michelle Zedek next time? Anything on Og? Anything like that? No, I think I shared it all. No, I'd love to hear what everyone thinks if they have any commentary on it. 
Okay, well, then that is it for the uh, for our discussion. Handing it over to you guys. Any comments, questions, observations that you had? Well, you know, I posted that little bit out of the Legends of the Jews on Og, and uh, you were wondering about the uh, what motivation he would have had to help out Abraham, you know, after trying to kill him a few times. And according to Legends of the Jews, the only motivation he had was that he, he desired Sarah. And his whole point of telling uh, Abraham that uh, Lot had been captured was so that he'd go off and get him, you know, try to rescue him and get himself killed. So <clears throat> I also wondered about, um, you know, because I had read that uh, Og had survived the flood. You know, Canon says that only eight souls survived. Which I find really interesting, but and I, I I couldn't reconcile how Og could have survived the flood if it says only eight souls survived, and and how how did he get through it when it covered everything? Well, according to legends of the Jews, he rode on top of the ark. So then I'm thinking, well, you know, and, and that Noah had permitted him to, and I thought, well, how how does that reconcile with canon? And the more I thought about it, you know, um. I can't remember who I was talking to. It might have been my son. It might have been Katie. But, you know, the point came up that it was an open invitation to the ark. Uh, you know, Noah Noah said, you know, come get on the ark and be saved. And, you know, whoever, it, it was an open invitation. So whoever wanted to, um, you know, and Og wouldn't fit in the ark, apparently. He was just too big. and And... You know, uh, Michael talked about how big he was, but all the accounts I read said he was even bigger, um, even bigger than that. And the accounts vary, but he was so big he had to ride on top of the ark. And then I thought, well, then how does that, how do you get eight souls survived? Well, he was a Nephilim. So, you know, um, the other thing that, uh, or, or, you know, he was half human, half, uh, half angel fallen angel and one of the things that legends of the jews says about them is you know they, they didn't die when when they got really old they just sort of withered away and and they had you know like a half-life and many of them would drown them find some way to drown themselves in the sea or commit suicide by uh taking some herb mixture so i thought it was interesting that Og could have possibly survived the flood, but not been counted as a soul um, because he was a Nephilim or, or descended. I, I'm a little confused on the terminology, whether Nephilim means uh, fallen angel or if it means the, you know, hybrid offspring. So maybe you could clear that up. Well, yeah, so there's definitely something different about him. That's why I'm saying there's more to meet the eye with this Og character that he just shows up. Uh, I really like the idea that he may have been a king of of a, a almost like a netherworld type of place. Uh, I think Michael had mentioned that. I need to look more into that. That's why I think there's more to meet the eyes, meet the eye here. Um, and I had also mentioned in the past that these Nephilim creatures, when they die, we we know in Enoch that they became demons, and, and Jubilee says the same thing. So that would tell us. Uh, yeah, Bashan was the underworld, as Michael said. Yeah, that's it. Thank you for clarifying that. I need to look more into that. Uh, because 
and on that point, Michael, the in the Lost Book of King Og, he's really big on the underworld. He's really big on uh, the worship of Baal. So there's a connection with Og and Baal as well. And so going back to my point on Enoch is that the demons, they still wander the earth. And these were the actual giants. The, the, the demons that possess people and torment people are giants on the earth, which tells us that Gilgamesh and Og, I'm assuming, uh, at least they're still on the earth. Am I wrong in that? I don't, I don't know. So there's something more to meet the eye that meets the eye here. That's all my thoughts on that. Oh, I I wanted to say something about Sodom and Lot. Uh, you know, I I totally agree with you guys that the 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 reason Sodom and Gomorrah were were destroyed. I mean, you, you know, Christianity points to oh, it's it's the homosexuality, and it, that probably definitely played into it. But they were so corrupt. Uh, Eliezer that you guys were talking about, who who would indeed was the son of Nimrod, according to everything I've ever read. Uh, he made up names for the for the five judges of the five cities, you know, and, and they were all derogatory because they were so wicked. They 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 didn't want to share anything. They didn't want travelers coming through. If if anyone did, they robbed them. Um, they. Uh, Okay, here's an example. They had a ferry to get across the river, and it cost four zuz, Z-U-Z, ever how much that was, to ride the ferry across. But if you waited across, they charged you eight. So, I mean, that's just how wicked, you know. Don't want to pay? You're going to wait? Okay, pay double. I find with um, San Gamora, in that area, it's really hard to believe, as you had mentioned earlier about um, that being like, you know, like even like a land flowing of milk and honey, that it was lush at that time, because it's kind of hard to fathom to think that that land was lush when you look at it now, even that whole entire area, uh, to think that when they were even crossing over into the land, that it's hard to fathom to think that it was flowing with all kinds of trees and, and uh, that lot even desired it so much. Uh, and now it's just total utter de desert. Right. Yeah. I mean, the contrast is is stunningly strong. And like I said earlier, it's it's not just that it was a lush wilderness and now it's a desert. It's the fact that this was the land that Yahuwah had uh, set aside for Yasharel, that he utterly destroyed it and it never came back. So that's always what really strikes me about it. Yeah, apparently there, there it was a, a big valley or a plain, and it was very, very lush and green, and there were five cities that were situated, five sister cities, and they were all somewhat cooperative with each other, but they just didn't want any outsiders. They wanted to keep everything for themselves. It says even in Legends of the Jews that they begrudged the birds, you know, eating eating the crops, so they literally exterminated all the birds. Well, when it comes to their private property, they sure didn't have a problem sharing each other's wives because that was one of the, the main points in Jasher that they would have yearly festivals. There was like a few of them in the year when it was like a weekend where it's uh, kind of turn a blind eye, don't ask, don't tell, where everyone would, every husband would give his wife out to somebody else and exchange them and their daughters as well. Uh, so it, it's almost like 
if they had a sharing there, it was, you know, obviously uh, perverse in every way, complete opposite of what Yahuwah intended uh, for sharing. Their laws were also, the laws were written to penalize the poor. So uh, if a rich man, uh, I, I can't remember how it went, uh, something about, uh, you know, they would charge a rich man uh, one day's service for something. But if you were poor and didn't have, a, you know, certain amount of cattle or something, they you, you had to pay double. So, I mean, the whole system was set up to be corrupt, which kind of, you know, reminds me of what we got going on now. The whole system is set up to be corrupt. And I see so many parallels. I mean, we I don't think we've quite reached the level yet of Sodom and Gomorrah and those other cities. But I mean, I, I just I see it, you know, all over again. And um, he seemed to be more concerned with with their selfish. Yeah, seemed to be more concerned with their selfishness and greed and poor treatment of their fellow man because they didn't know the meaning of the word love thy neighbor. Um, you know, and comparing it to Job and Abraham, who, like you said, were so open and giving and, you know, opened all the sides of their dwellings to, to travelers and welcomed them. You know, Sodom and Gomorrah and those sister cities, they were just the opposite. Some traveler came through. Uh, everyone would steal just a tiny bit from them. And then when they complained, you know, until they, were, they had nothing. And when the people would complain, they'd say, oh, well, look, we only took a little bit. And, you know. They they would give them you know, back stuff, but they wouldn't give them anything, uh, any food, water, anything like that. And uh, they would starve them out, literally starve them to death. And if if they caught anyone, there is something in Legends of the Jews that says that one of Lot's daughters felt so sorry for, for some beggar that he, she was secretly feeding him. And they caught her and they burned her. They burned her basically on a pyre. Uh, they killed one of Lot's daughters for being kind. So what you just described actually is exactly how the book of Jasher describes it as well. And yeah, so that's exactly what happened. One of Lot's daughters fed a man out of compassion. And so what's important to note about Sodom and Gomorrah, and we'll be talking about this in the upcoming weeks, is that in it became a society where in order to obey Yahuwah and his laws, you had to disobey the laws of the land. Like it became illegal to obey the Torah. And so she was burned. And then there was another woman. I can't remember why she was burned, uh, not killed, but they actually poured uh, honey all over her. And they brought in a swarm of bees and the bees kept stinging her till that she died. And it said that when that happened in the book of Jasher, her cries ascended to heaven and Yahuwah heard her cries when that happened. And so when you see the angels coming down, they're actually coming in to investigate. And I'll be talking about this, but it's, it's really fascinating that this is one of the things that connects us with the book of Jasher. And I pointed this out before. In, in Genesis, it only says the angels... They didn't want to go to Lot's house immediately. Lot was at the front gate. Now, Lot disobeys the um, the laws of Sodom by inviting them into his house. Because what they were supposed to do, Lot was supposed to take them to the public beds in the streets. And in fact, the angel said, 
they wanted to go to those those uh, beds. They wanted to go lay in the public beds to see what would happen to them. They were they were looking to investigate, and and Lot was like, no, no, don't go. Just come to my house. And they're they're a little hesitant. They're like, okay, fine, we'll come to your house. And so it it kind of backfires on the people because the people find out. Wait a second, Lot's disobeyed uh, the rules here, and they're supposed to be in the beds so we could rob them and beat them and do whatever we want, you know, sodomize them. And um, and so they basically try to break down the house and get in there. And the angel's like, okay, this is worse than we thought. And that's when they're like, okay, we're destroying this place. So, uh, but we'll be talking about that uh, in the upcoming weeks. And to answer your question, Katie, you said, is that the background to Lot offering up his daughters in the place of the visitors? Uh, I'm trying to re- remember, and I'll have to try to answer that question when we get to it, because he does offer one of his daughters in the place of the angels, which is really interesting. And, um, you know, I, I, at this point in time, I would say that does not benefit Lot's character. Uh, but, um, yeah. Oh yeah. So the woman who was covered with honey and stung by bees also fed a hungry man. Yeah. Guys, I'm exhausted. It's, uh, um, I'll let you guys talk. If anybody else wants to say something, I'm, it's getting late and I'm fading. So I'll give it like 10 more minutes and then we'll officially close this. I was just going to say that um, with my understanding that when Lod had offered up one of his daughters is that he knew that they wouldn't take her. That's why um, that's why he did it. And I know that he kind of gets a lot of people dog on him on that, but because they were doing like such homosexual acts and stuff that they weren't even interested in the women in that. But my other comment in, in that is that I don't know whether we've, we've, uh, would I agree with Rebecca by saying that we haven't reached um, the levels of some of the sinful things that happen. And I think that things that happen behind closed doors and even some of the things that are happening, even the laws that are being passed in our governments these days is, is, you know, nothing short of being super sinful and then it goes to show you when we start walking away from Yahweh's laws and commandments and that, that, um, you know, how deep the the curse can go. And when we disobey like that, and maybe that's one thing that's kind of kept us going is because we do have people, uh, remnants that are trying to keep commandments and praying for people around us and, and, uh, in our society and that, but, um, yeah, really interesting and in how we can really fall short. It reminded me of what you had said in the earlier teaching that you did about, you know, we had talked, my husband and I talked about that earlier today, about being evil continually. And that's what we see, you know, that what's happening in society is just people are just thinking evil continually. And it's even, you can't even talk about um, things about uh, of Yah. It's more sinful to talk about the Bible in even our workplaces than it is to even... Uh, to go against you don't even want to say anything about um anything that they're going or pushing their agendas at because um of, yeah of all the transgender stuff that they're pushing because they people will like stone you to death uh just even if you even think about disagreeing in an environment like that yeah i was just listening to the report Somebody posted it here in this Discord group. The Vanderbilt Hospital, they have been uh, taking part in the transgender uh, medical procedures. 
And, you know, it came out that they admitted that they were doing it just because it was a huge moneymaker. They'd make like $40,000 per surgery or something like that. Just some insane number. And so bringing a lot for the hospital. So the, the it wasn't just that they were doing it for money. What they the Vanderbilt hospitals they started doing is, is all the medical staff, anybody who opposed uh, transgender surgery or who wouldn't be a part of it, they were basically telling them to leave. And, and these are, of course, doctors who no, can no longer have an opinion on something as simple and straightforward as a person's biology to say, I think that's a man and I think that's a woman. And it, it really is reaching those points now. Like it, it, it's unbelievable that you would have hospital staff and doctors who are either forced to turn a blind eye, which is what they were doing in Sodom and Gomorrah, and take part in these terrible things that are happening. Uh, or be let go and have to leave uh, over something. Yeah, Anderson Cooper is a is a Vanderbilt. Um, so there's a long long history with the Vanderbilts. If anyone doesn't know about them, I've writ I've covered them ex a lot in my writings. They come up a lot. So, what do you guys think of what Noel was saying? Or Og was jealous or hated Nimrod. I thought that was interesting. What do you guys think of that? Anything like that? I don't have a problem believing that because uh, just look at how much uh, among the wicked people of today that run this place, look at how much competition and backbiting and stabbing and throwing each other into the bus. You know, they, they don't have any love for each other. Uh, you know, they're, they're just bound by their hatred of Yah. And I, I think, uh, you know, if they didn't have that holding them together, they would just tear each other apart anyway. So I got no problem believing that one. Yeah, and you know, the as much as I talk about, you know, the world as a stage and a script and all that, and I think that's very true. And I think that there's a lot of pressure to keep to it. One of the things that is undeniable, in my opinion, and my my conclusions, my research is that they are blackmailed into, you know, like you have to go along with it you know once there's some line you cross at some point that you have sold your soul whatever and you are stuck in it now for life and you you can they can hate each other they can attack each other they can do all sorts of stuff but as rebecca said there is a there is a clear um ultimate worship of satan obviously whether they even recognize it or not but uh hatred of yahuwah that is uh binding them together and they can do all sorts of stuff to each other, but um, they're all on the same team, ultimately. I have to ask, too, Imrod sold his son to Abram. What do you guys make about that? What do you guys make of that? That piqued my interest there. Yeah, that was the first I've heard that. Um, what's the source for, for, I, I'd never actually considered that, but Nimrod had a policy of placing his children throughout all these different kingdoms, you know, for purposes of control and Abraham, you know, he was a big deal. He was very, very rich. He had a lot of power. Um, so it actually doesn't seem that odd that he would, um, I, I, I don't. I don't know where, where that comes from, uh, but but maybe he just hoped that uh, 
you know, he'd have an ins inside source for what Abraham's up to, almost like a spy, but Eliezer, for whatever reason, was faithful and loyal to Abraham. And, uh, you know, just because he's from the wrong side of the tracks, uh, I think that Yahuwah gave us all free will for a reason. You can choose. Right. So regarding Eliezer, let's just assume for the moment, and I, I have to see the source of that, but, uh, but that, that, that is interesting. So let's assume that Nimrod sold his son, Eliezer, to Abraham. I think what you just said is absolutely true. He was trying to give, trying to, he, Nimrod, like, Nimrod couldn't kill him. So he's trying to do anything he can to have the upper arm, the upper hand. If he realizes that Abraham is going to supplant or overturn his kingdom, and that's what's being prophesied on multiple accounts, he's like, okay, if I, if I can send my own son to his table and to his care and his, you know, confidence. And look what happens. It almost, uh, Abraham is going to hand over the keys of the kingdom to Eliezer. And I could read that in um, the rise of Abraham where he's going to do that. He's like, he has no son. He's like, you know what? I'm going to, that what you, has said about the many nations, it's going to come through Eliezer. He's my adopted son. And, uh, and you is like, no, it's not going to be him. And so I, I could see Nimrod trying that. I totally could see him doing that. Well, okay, I'm going to go ahead and comment on this. It's 1030 and kind of finishing up here. The conversation going on in the chat is that uh, Kathy Griffin is uh, uh, looks like a dude, but not just that, that she may be a Vanderbilt, which I find really fascinating. And, um, you know, I, I just talked about the script, and Kathy Griffin comes across to me as like the biggest flip on the script uh, what, remember when she was like pro Trump, and then all of a sudden she's like just singing his praise, and all of a sudden she just turns and she's against them, and like it was like a like a charge is being led, almost like there was a turning point even in the media. I, it's just the whole thing. I when it, when that was happening, I'm like, okay, this is so artificial. I don't know how anybody is buying this, but so the fact that she might be a Vanderbilt is um uh, really interesting. Well, on that note, I am I am beat. I had a very restful Sabbath. It was good, but uh, I did push myself very hard this week. And um, I'm going to officially close this. The recording is going down. Thank you, Josh, as always, for all the work you put into these recordings. I'm actually behind, a couple weeks behind. I'm putting them up on YouTube. That tells you how busy I've been. So I'm falling behind. I just haven't been getting them up. And uh, thank you, everybody, for attending and uh, your comments and participation. Yeah, this next Thursday, I will be doing a recording on the Black Dahlia hoax. And a lot of people surprisingly don't know who the Black Dahlia is. But uh, if you show up, you'll learn. You'll learn something. And I think uh, there'll be some bills going off. And I'm you know, saying that this was a huge Intel you know, hoax back before anyone knew what they were. And people just bought, bought it, hook, line, and sinker, the whole narrative. And you go back and look at it. It's the most ridiculous, silly investigation ever so with that shabbat shalom everybody have a good night and uh we'll do this again this thursday and next sabbath see you guys around i am signing off shabbat shalom everyone